Welcome to Mind Plus Design, the show where we find the connections amongst mental health and graphic design. I'm Bobby, and candy corn once saved my life, but ruined my waistline. However, I'm also the host of the show. In this episode, we're going to be talking about making a connection, examining the cultures and communities of design. With me today, I have Spencer Yamans. He's an addictions counselor, and he is a graduate student uh, studying human resources and management. How's it going, Spencer? Going great. Awesome. I also have with me a boss-ass woman and amazing graphic designer, Stephanie Reith. Hey, Stephanie, how are you? I'm doing all right. You are too kind. <laughs> Um, Stephanie, we've known each other for years and you are amazing. Thank you for, uh, being on the show today. Of course. I'm happy to be here. So we're going to go ahead and just dive right into this. Uh, my first question is for Spencer. Spencer, kind of through the mental health lens, what is culture and what is community? Okay. I think it's important to recognize that culture and community can be conceptualized via myriad ways. And I think if you pay really close attention to what's going on in the United States right now uh, and abroad, that we are going to be redefining culture uh, in the 21st century uh, against what we may have said in the 20th century and prior to that. If I were going to use a model, I would come up with something, a Venn diagram, if you will, of three distinct arenas. The first one, I would most likely follow the work of Hofstede, talking about ethno-cultural dimensions. Let me give you a couple of examples of what those are. So you could have masculine culture versus feminine culture. Uh, an example of that would be uh, Japan versus Brazil. So the Japanese have more of a masculine culture where they, ha they have a greater value for profit and competition and hard work, where in Brazil, it's more of a feminine culture where empathy, togetherness, uh, working together, cooperation is more important. Uh, other dynamics include collectivistic versus individualistic. So Israel, for example, is a very collectivistic culture, whereas the United States is more individualistic. Um, and then there are others such as long-term orientation versus short-term orientation. The United States, more short-term. China, for example, is more long-term. So those are the ethno-cultural dimensions. Another arena that you have to talk about is industry cultures, such as the culture of graphic designers. Uh, the jargons, the ways of doing business, the way that graphic designers talk to each other. Those are all part of the industry culture. Um, medical doctors have theirs, welders have theirs. The final arena is where it gets really interesting because here you start to segue into the community spirit, sort of the intersection of culture and community. Here you're talking about workplace culture, and that's whether you have a clan type, so that's like a small business or a family owned, where there's a lot of overlap of responsibility. 
You can also have an adhocracy, which is where innovation, new ideas, content growth is prized. I would imagine most of your graphic house, your graphic design houses are going to be adhocracies. Then there's the market type, which is that's like Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, where there's just a constant sense of competition and contribution. And finally, the hierarchy type, where there's a high degree of partitions between each of the different ranks. So that would be the military, or that would be a store like Publix, where they only pretty much hire from within and you work your way up from the bottom. So clan, adhocracy, market, um, and uh, hierarchy. Those are the four different types of uh, workplace cultures. So to take a step back, there's an overlap between the type of industry culture that you're in, the workplace culture that you want to be in, the desired workplace culture, and then the ethnocultural dimensions on top of that. So that, I mean, girl, you just peeled back that onion, damn. Um, there's a lot of different layers to this. So uh, with the ethnocultural and with the industry culture, kind of what I'm picked up from you is within your communities, you can have multiple cultures, but within the community, it's like who you're bringing in to kind of fit whatever uh, that standard of a place is. That's an important point. Let me give you a quick example because you could go in all sorts of directions with this. When you're talking about these three different arenas, you can have incongruities. Let me give you an example. So if you have a Japanese firm, for example, that's really hierarchical and very focused on uh, competition, so it's a very masculine type company, Pro competition, profit, doing your mm -hmm. best, outdoing others. And let's say you wanna open a facility in Brazil. Let me go back to that example. Well, in Brazil, it's more feminine, it's more empathetic, uh, they may prefer, prefer more of a clan type, more mm -hmm. family uh, experience. And so there's lots of different ways where you can create congruity or create incongruity. Mm -hmm. What's the consequence of incongruity? People leave. Gotcha. Stephanie, uh, that was a lot. Kind that of was a lot. <laughs> That's like, wow, it's... Um... You know that old saying, I'm sure a lot of design people remember the one about like, if you're the smartest guy in the room, it's time to leave the room. Right. Well, I feel like I'm in the right room <laughs> because like, Spencer, you are an academic genius. And so much of that just went right over my head. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, that was, um, that was really, really pronounced. But thank you for kind of breaking that apart. Again, it's, uh, it kind of shows us more of our making and how we um, kind of came or come to be um, as community. Uh, Stephanie, in your words, how would you describe the culture of design? Oh, man. Um, well, I think it can kind of go one of two ways. I think in a good scenario where you have a really strong um, culture that there's harmony, people are positively benefiting, you're having good relationships and communication with your clients. I think in the best case scenario, it's a culture that is, it's always, you're always learning. 
And so uh, people get into this field and they get around their peers. And I think it's just natural that people get competitive. And where I think a lot of cultures go wrong is they turn it into an adversarial competition as opposed to a motivation to learn from one another and an inspiration to set aside your pride and ego and focus more on, you know, like right, like right now at my current job, uh, my coworker that I'm a direct peer with, um, I speak with her the most every day out of anybody else that I work with. We do pretty much the same job. She's nearly a decade younger than I am. And I have really tried my hardest to never let that, to never have sort of an ageist perspective on it or never let it make me bitter or make me feel like I know more than her just because I'm older. Because I'm, I'm well-versed in design enough to know that this is a field where you never stop learning. And there's always, it doesn't matter what sort of expert or niche, like high skill level sort of designer you are, there's always going to be a different creative perspective or a different strategy or a different lens from which to view solving whatever the problem is. So I think in a good culture, which I feel like my coworker and I and my other coworkers and I have, we, she and I are able to bounce ideas off of each other and look at each other's work and use it to help motivate the other to do better or use it as an excuse to learn new things. Whereas I think where a lot of cultures go wrong within the field of graphic design or you know whatever extended marketing or advertising scenario you're working in is people get really hung up on their egos and they use it as, like I said, it becomes an adversarial situation. And when you get to that point, when you, when you get so attached to your artistic ego that um, your self-worth or your, um, you know, self-image as it corresponds to your career or success, if you let that all get tied up together, um, you can just turn into a really like pride driven monster and where it's like, you're always comparing yourself to other people and their work and their job and their, you know, career path. And, um, so yeah, I guess I would say like the good version of culture and community is inspiring each other to enrich our, ourselves and our skills and life experiences which positively affects our work. But when people go down a bad route with it, it becomes a very isolating sort of thing where you wanna hide on your own island and keep all your own skills and techniques to yourself. And you are like this one man army competing against every other person in the world that does your job or that's up for this you know, job interview you want or whatever the case may be. Right, I think, um, I think we both experienced that being at Omore. Uh, I think that was kind of our, we built that kind of community as we were kind of learning about the culture of design. And um, I mean, that definitely was a big thing. I mean, there were days where we walked into the room and I swear, I think everyone had a gun or a knife. If you, approach, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you approach them wrong and oh, it was on. Um, yeah. For sure. Within and when you're that age, like when you when you're when you're at that experience level, it's a very like 
I don't know, you almost, you start off with this very prideful sort of like, yeah, I'm in design school. I'm going to take on the world. I have all these big ideas. And then at least in our case, by the time you're done with it, you're just so worn out and tired that, that you all become like war veteran buddies. Like, like you've all been in the trenches together and have these like trauma bonds. <laughs> and, and like you are somehow life beats you into submission and you become bonded over it. Totally. I can't remember how many times I would hear somebody saying, oh, I'm going to take web two with uh, Josh. And I'm like, oh, with Lamolino, Good luck. And I remember just going, <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> that was a pretty tough class. That was intense. I mean, yeah. with For, the, for the listeners, it was, he structured his class in such a way that web two was was it information architecture? It was information architecture. Um, there was touches of UI UX. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, so it was very like heady, big picture thinking stuff. Yeah, it was. It was really our biggest introduction into research, more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephanie, with the Nashville community of designers, uh, in your perspective. What makes the Nashville graphic design uh, community different than, let's say, like Atlanta or Seattle or anywhere else? Well, um, you know, I think part of it, for good or for, for ill, I think the Nashville community is, I mean, just to start off, we're smaller. And even though Nashville and the design scene here has grown exponentially in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, um, we're just a much smaller city than somewhere like Chicago or Atlanta or Seattle. And we also, it seems like while there are more design opportunities opening up, that industry is not the most popular thing here. Whereas if you go even to Chattanooga, like it seems like design is just more in the forefront of the culture and and of the economy. Um, So here, I think what kind of makes it special is that there's, there's kind of fewer of us and of those of us that are here, they're, um, you know, like so many people in this town are transplants. And so I moved to Nashville in 2007. So I've, kind of like earned my rights to call myself a Nashvillian at this point, according to the natives. Um, but like, there's so many people that come here after college because they, they read an article about, you know, Nashville restaurants or the Nashville music scene. And so there's kind of like this camaraderie am- amongst people with seniority and like who, you know, whoever has the, the oldest old head story is the the king of the mountain, <laughs> if you will. Like, wow, you've been here since such and such. Well, you have no idea what it was like 10 years before that. And, and so there's kind of, I wouldn't say like hazing in an abusive or toxic way, but there's kind of like a bust of, busting your chops sort of like, oh, the newbies here. We gotta, we gotta give him kind of a hard time until, or not let him into the fold until we know he's not just gonna pack up and move to Austin in three years or whatever. Um, so there's that. I think it's because of that, it's an inherently scrappy community of designers. 
Um, and I think it's also a community of designers that um, we're very versatile um, because the Nashville advertising and design market is relatively limited. Um, I feel like a lot of people here, the ones that stay around here and that don't like move off to other destinations, they wind up very well-rounded because, you know, you just need a job sometimes. And it doesn't matter if you specialize in motion graphics and that's your passion in life. Like there are just situations in this town where, I mean, and I'm sure especially recently with all of the layoffs um, and furloughs that have been caused by COVID, like you just find yourself in a position where you gotta pay the bills. And so you might have an opportunity to change career paths or to broaden your skill set. And even though you, you know, like your driving passion is motion, you might find yourself in a role where you're handling branding, or you might find yourself in a role where, uh, because uh, design and advertising aren't at the forefront of this economy, you might having to, you might find yourself having to wear a lot of hats. Um, so I think it has made us kind of a, a really tough, gritty, utilitarian bunch that like we just, you have to be able to put out the fire. Mm -hmm. And if, if you can't do it, you better be able to think on your feet and figure out what the best way to approach finding somebody else to do it or learning how to do it yourself is. Um, and I think there's also a lot of, just in general, as far as aesthetics, a lot of that sort of Southern culture, Hatch show print is here, which I think uh, influences a lot of people's visual uh, stylistic tendencies in the community. And, you know, that sort of down-home Southern, like, advertisements for grits and gravy and peaches and you know, we, we all love the nostalgic Southern sort of visual vibe. So, so yeah, that's pretty much how I'd sum it up. A, a bunch of plumbers with pictures of peaches. You know, I love a good peach. Um, <laughs> that's why you moved to Georgia. That's why I moved to Georgia. Now, um, it's really, uh, it's really interesting that you're talking about the grits of Nashville because when I was an intern at Country Music Television, um, the creative director at the time, she used those exact words that if you want to be a designer here, you have to learn grit. And mm -hmm. I find that interesting, like these different uh, communities um, from different people with different cultural backgrounds will come in and kind of assimilate to this uh, different community with this different visual voice. Um, and just so everyone knows, with Nashville, um, you know, it's not all Dolly Parton. Granted, she's a very big part of this. Two yes. very big parts of it. <laughs> um, yes. And, and you know, like, I, you make that joke. And by the way, um, bless Dolly, because, like, like, everybody in Nashville knows, like, you got to have Dolly on your side. Because if you don't, you're in trouble. Um, but I, I think to your point, it's interesting that you say that because at the same time, like, we're still very much a showbiz town in a way, you know, like people, it's kind of fallen out of fashion, but people used to call Nashville, Nash Vegas. And there was a reason for that. And that was because, you know, young, creative, 
like bless their hearts, little spirits from whatever podunk town or counties east of here were driving here with the last dollars in their pockets to make it on a prayer and a dream. And that's kind of like the Nashville. And then they show up and, you know, if they're good enough, they, they get a foot in the door. And then, you know, if you follow the historic trope, it's kind of like the record labels, you know, just pump you for all your creative juice and leave you a terrible shell of a human with like a drug problem and an existential crisis and like 15% of the money that you should actually have. <laughs> so in a way, it's like Nashville does have a very sort of cutthroat, like, you know, the big businesses, they don't play around and they're used to having, they're used to having the weight in the room. And so uh, as a creative professional in the design industry, it's kind of like fighting for your own agency and autonomy in a culture that is very much, you know, it's kind of imbued in this place to chew up young creative hopefuls and spit them out. So if you can survive here doing that and not lose your soul, <laughs> like you, you're pretty, you're pretty tough. Yeah. Um... And it's kind of going back a little bit. We were talking about like bringing kind of people in and of course, like we don't support hazing, but there is a little bit of a hazing um, and a way it's kind of embedded into our networking uh, kind of abilities. And with Spencer real quick, with an HR standpoint, what are kind of some uh, good practices for networking? One of the things I think is important is that, <clears throat> to be succinct about it, is that there's really two avenues for networking. There's the formal network and there's the informal or what we often call the hidden network. Um, it's not only important for finding a job, but it's also important to, if you want to improve a workplace culture or you're looking at talent acquisition or retention or finding interns, whatever the case happens to be. Let me break this down a little bit. So the formal network, that's gonna include things like emails, calls, flyers, print, letters, going to conferences, it's a big one, uh, trade shows, uh, going to meetings, going to classes, anything that is a formal event or a formal mechanism for getting your name out there, interacting with people, uh, creating a platform for new ideas, assimilating new ideas into your business. Uh, that, that's the formal network. Now, the informal path, that's gonna be things like social media messaging, uh, leveraging friends and family relationships. Uh, I personally got a, a hint about a job that's going to be opening up just because I went to hang out with a friend and had lunch today. That's an example of an informal network. Um, water cooler talk. Um, you know, I know from my days of being a musician uh, and working with other musicians, the, the water cooler talk, we all get around together and have our water or our alcohol or whatever after a gig. And it would be like, hey, I heard this is opening up over here or this job is opening up over in this city. So you want to leverage both. You want to do the formal networking. And that would include things also like getting on LinkedIn, uh, creating a portfolio, um, 
finding out who is the HR manager and who is the creative director for um, any graphic design house or corporation that you want to work for. But you also want to leverage those informal networks uh, and use the sanguine side of it, the relationship that you have in place. Uh, and I think working at both ends can be, um, can be truly helpful. Yeah. Spencer, you're really good about peeling back onions. Like, I swear, this man is correct. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, Stephanie, with graphic design, we really put a lot of focus onto networking. Um, my question for you is, what ways are, uh, I guess, common to designers for networking? Um, well, uh, for one, I feel like Spencer, just like if, if you're a design student out there that's trying to, to start off their career, you should definitely be taking notes every time Spencer talks because I feel like he listed it out really well. Um, and I don't know, I'm not sure what I can even contribute. Uh, but uh, what I, I guess what I will say is uh, traditional routes for designers is if you're looking for work, you definitely want to have your portfolio up somewhere. Obviously, that's, that's like a step one, no brainer kind of thing. Make sure people can see the sort of work that you're doing and make sure the work that you're showing online really showcases what you're good at and and kind of like a comprehensive view of what you're good at, um, unless you're trying to like really, really niche specialize. Um, but make sure that your body of work that's available online um, shows off the sort of skill sets that you wanna leverage into your next job or your next freelance gig. Um, beyond that, I mean, like Spencer said, like the obvious stuff, uh, if, most people who don't have a corporate budget can't really afford to go to conferences or trade shows, but there's all sorts of, in, in any major city, if you get on Google or you get on like AIGA, uh, Nashville has an AIGA chapter or any sort of other industry organization or social media group or whatever, places like that are always having mixers. That's if you've just moved somewhere new or you're just starting off, I think that's a really good place to start is those sort of like cold call mixers where you're a bunch of strangers basically on a blind date um, or any other sort of other like industry oriented event, whether it's a panel discussion or an exhibit or, you know, like a talk or anything like that those are always great places to meet new people. Um, as far as like the sort of modes of networking that I think I've always been more comfortable with, uh, which I think is kind of like what Spencer was referring to as your non-traditional ones, um, is really, I think the biggest thing I can tell people who are trying to get better at networking is to take a lot of care and compassion in your relationships in life. And I know that that sounds like really broad advice, but it is truly the best advice I can give here because I, Bobby, you and I were just having a discussion about this recently. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have had somebody who I haven't thought about them in two years or like 
you know, we were just buddies in some other sort of context. We were work buddies, but they're not in the industry and they've moved on to a different field or it's an old school friend from years ago or somebody from a hometown that like, we may not have a super close relationship, but we, you know, engage in a positive way online somehow on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Just people from all areas of my life who, if, if, I forget, I'm going to butcher the, the Angelou quote, and I, man, I sure hope it was an Angelou quote, um, but the quote about, like, people may forget what you say, but they'll always remember how you make them feel, mm-hmm. and if you engage in your relationships in life in a way that makes those around you feel good, they'll remember you, and they'll remember more about you and who you are. And there have been so many situations I've run into where somebody has just, I've just built goodwill with them and they reach out to me months or years later and said, Hey, aren't you a graphic designer? My boss is looking for somebody to help our company with this thing. Like, would you be willing to talk to them? Or, Hey, we haven't caught up in a while, but I started my own little side hustle on the internet and I'm trying to get an e-commerce site going. Could, can you help me with that? Can I pay you to help with that? Or do you know anybody that does that? Like that sort of thing happens to me all the time. So I think if you just like, uh, it sounds so silly and so obvious, but if you're just really good to people and are, you know, outward and expressive of what you do and what you're good at. And like most people, most people that know me, most everybody that meets me knows that I'm in this field and it's not because I'm like running around with my nose in the air thinking I'm the best designer on the earth or anything. It's just because like, I don't know, I feel awkward about talking about myself, but like talking about work seems easier for me. And I feel like that's a, a strangely common trait with graphic designers. Yep. So like, just be memorable and be good to people. And like, eventually the work will find you. Uh, Stephanie, really funny story because you talked about being outwardly expressive. I wanted to bring you back to your freshman year of college. We went to an event and they handed out the mic to all the new people at the event. Uh And I used air quotes right there. New people. And um, I remember grabbing the mic and saying, probably just to preface it this, don't do what I did. Um, what I grabbed, did you say? This was at Yazi, right? Yes. So I grabbed the mic and I said, I just want to be somebody's bitch for the summer. <laughs> <laughs> I had totally forgotten that that was your answer. But yeah, that sounds about right. So um, Spencer, I think through an HR standpoint, that's probably not the best <laughs> approach. No, that's not something that I would do. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> I do, I do want to say something here, though, that um, Stephanie kind of touched on something really important, talking about creating that, that positive feeling more so than what you say. Um, and I think that's not only important for bringing people into the fold, but I'm also thinking about the experience that the customer has, the client. Um, because it's not, you're wanting to create that sort of happy, you know, 
happy experience for them. Yeah. Um, and I think that that feeling, they may not remember what the problem was. They may not remember what, what, what their needs were at the time, but they remember, oh yeah, Stephanie made it a great experience for me as a, as a client, as a customer. And that's why I want to go back to her. And that's kind of the idea of um, being genuine. Mm-hmm. And something that we will care, uh, talk about later on is kind of the core conditions, one of them but, being genuine. But that's legit because, and I'm, I won't name any names, but you and I both, Bobby, we can sit here and I bet we could each list three people off the top of our heads that we've known from our school days or early work days or whatever that are incredibly talented, really skilled designers but because of their attitude or because of like the way they treated people around them, they're not as good at networking. Yeah. Um, I want to call this person El Capitan Buttmunch. Um, Perfect. <laughs> Stephanie, let's kind of talk about that with uh, Capitan Buttmunch. Um, has there ever been a time that really just kind of resonates with you where you're trying to bring somebody into your community um, to help kind of serve a purpose or help somebody else. And they can either completely ghosted or just straight up rejected you. Oh, for sure. (laughs) I can definitely, I can think of a recent time. Um, Yeah. And, you know, it's really, it's, that kind of thing frustrates me so much. Um, Man, I don't even know what to say about it, but it's, maybe that's another thing, another point to make is if you're trying to network and you're trying to further your career, having an open mind can only help you. And honestly, unless somebody is making you try to, you know, sign a piece of paper, like, unless it's a matter of a terms of a contract or something written down and legally binding, like, nothing no new experience is going to be detrimental so people that kind of look down their nose at opportunities that I that they think are maybe beneath them either career-wise or pay level wise or you know like that's too weird that's too out there like Mm -hmm. you know and not every opportunity has to be for you but if you can't approach new situations with the sort of natural curiosity uh people remember that and and they remember that you're narrow-minded and they quit bringing you opportunities and i recently had to kind of like write somebody that that i care about off because and that is a very talented person off because uh they just, they didn't have that open mind and they only wanted to be involved in something if it met like very specific XYZ criteria that was in their own self-interest. And, and that's not a copacetic relationship. And maybe another note to be made here is like, always look for the things that you can get out of a situation to further yourself. But at the same time, you need to be looking at what you can bring with it to better it. Um, I hate to be full of cliches and 
you know, the sort of goofy platitudes, but a smart man once told me something to the effect of the rising tide raises all ships. And it's true. Like, if you're just trying to drain water away, like, you're not helping the team, you're not helping the community, you're not helping anybody else. And eventually people are going to see you as that drain. So, yeah, I don't know if you had any specific question there, but I just kind of went off. So. I do want to, I want to speak to that because that, that's pretty huge. And so I'm going to kind of step out of my little counseling and HR world and go back to being, you know, a flutist for a minute here. Um, I mean, I remember graduating from the conservatory with a master's in music and I had colleagues that would not take certain gigs because they felt entitled to have the bigger gigs. And so for me, I said, well, I'll do anything. Uh, so I started taking the smaller gigs and somebody said, oh, well, this, this job is two hours worth of music and it pays a hundred bucks and I would just take it. And what I found is that by starting off with the smaller gigs, people continued to ask me to do more and more stuff. And colleagues of mine that had sort of that entitled attitude about, well, you know, I have a master's degree and I'm this and I'm that and I studied here and I studied there. And, you know, so I'm not going to take this gig. I'm waiting for the big stuff to happen. And so to me, it was always kind of obvious that the way that you build your reputation, obviously, is by starting off small. If you're rock solid, you show up prepared, you're easy to work with, you know your part cold, um, you're going to go somewhere. And I see a lot of parallels between that and then the experience in graphic design. If you come out of a pre prestigious school and say, well, you know, I've been at this level, so I'm not going to take this gig and I'm not going to do that one. And that one's too weird and these people don't pay enough, et cetera, so forth then you're actually robbing yourself of an opportunity to, to try something that may work out really well for you. I think in the kind of the overall uh, lesson in this is um, don't be a toilet, be a bidet. Okay, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I had, I had, I had my, my mic muted because I am, very self-conscious of the fact that you can probably hear my ice cubes and my cocktail. <laughs> so when y'all are talking, don't mute my mic. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I like the joke. Yeah, well, it's, um, I think it, we do see a lot of it. We do, um, and then I think it's more of a uh, younger designer problem when they come out of school. It's, um, I have to be this person in this type of culture or this type of community, excuse me. I have to be this type of person. I have to be this. I have to be this. And really in design, we spend a lot of time really working out our identity mm -hmm. um, for, I don't know, first maybe like five, ten years. There's some, totally. there are some designers like who really kind of become stagnant and wanting to do one thing and our field is so ever-changing you have to evolve therefore community and networking is so essential completely um, completely and i think the younger designer it's like you 
it's hard to not want to find that peg to fit into. It's hard because like, I feel like all four years of design school instructors and, you know, classmates are asking like, what do you do when, what do you want to do when you get out? What kind of job do you want to find when you're done? Where are you going with this? And so you kind of want to find a comfy little pigeonhole for yourself. But the reality is that like, you're basically Tarzan swinging through the jungle and you can either reach for the vines that are within, you know, your arm's length, or you can stare off into the vines that you want that are on the other side of the jungle and fall on your face. And sometimes you just have to grab the vines that are in front of you and have a good attitude about it and cross your fingers for the rest. But Spencer said a really great word when he used the word entitled. And I feel like the design world in particular seems to produce students and young professionals that really struggle with a sense of entitlement because we're, it's like everybody suffers from the I'm so special syndrome because we're all weirdo artsy fartsy types and nobody else understands us or what we do or so we think. And, and then you either take that and you kind of like, you know, bask in your misanthropy and, and say, I'm a weirdo, I'm a square peg and that what, that's what defines me and I'm happy with it. Or you do the thing where there's a superiority, there's an entitlement, there's a, I, I am better than you. I am the end all be all, know everything. I'm the man, I'm the wizard behind the curtain and this is Oz, so bow before me. And, and whenever students come out of school like that, or people, you know, change careers and start out like that, oh man, all you're doing is like your atlas walking uphill with a globe on your back. Like you're just hurting yourself um, because you're closing yourself off to all of these opportunities that could you could really stand to learn something from even if they're not like that super rock star job that you want to put on your resume even if they're not the end goal like you can learn and grow from it and you probably need the money but even if you don't <laughs> you should learn and grow from it yeah um so listen here captain butt munch um mm -hmm. we don't care about your tight jeans or your mumford and sons album that you found that's somehow unique um oh man the mumford and sons twitter sphere is gonna be all over you i really do like that band i'm just saying i think <laughs> saw a lot of it that's all okay <laughs> saw a lot of it um but listen out. you know everyone poops you're not that special um, <laughs> like, that's the truth ruth you know, uh, Spencer, kind of um, as we're kind of talking about uh, the culture of design, um, what's a way that we can make uh, culture more inclusive? Okay. So I'm going to get kind of back in my little academic realm here. There was a great article by Laura Sherbin. So anybody that's listening and wants to know who this is, Laura Sherbin, S-H-E-R-B-I-N, and Ripa Rashid. Rashid is spelled R-A-S 
HIV. So they wrote a Harvard Business Review article, this is 2017, called Diversity Doesn't Stick Without Inclusion. I'm gonna read some of this because pretty great. Part of the problem is that diversity and inclusion are often so lumped together that, they, that they're assumed to be the same thing. But that's just not the case. In the context of the workplace, diversity equals representation. Without inclusion, however, the crucial connections that attract diverse talent, encourage their participation, foster innovation, and lead to business growth will not happen. Boom, mic drop. The way that I read that and, and that I look at that is that a lot of places focus on diversity, which is great, but you're putting an emphasis on how people are different. And I think that everything that's going on in the world today, that it's important that we focus on inclusion and finding our common strengths, uh, the things that we share, the things that we have uh, in common, rather than being so centered on, hey, let's celebrate our diversity. Now, I'm not suggesting being colorblind. Uh, I'm not suggesting smoothing over differences uh, because those kinds of behaviors kind of generate uh, like an artificial sense of nirvana that doesn't really exist. And that's just gonna lead to more resentment, I think. But acknowledging differences while also saying, okay, we know how we're different. Let's focus on how we're more alike and how can we leverage our common strengths towards whatever the end goal happens to be. That's a pretty good point. It's pretty interesting that um, you, uh, you kind of bring this up because, yeah, I think that kind of feeds into our competitive side. Stephanie, what are some things that you think the graphic design culture could do to make, uh, make this field more inclusive? Oh, I think, hmm, that's a really good question. Um, I think for one thing, uh, getting feedback on your work from a variety of people is important. Um, I think it is a very easy trap to fall into where we don't see our own blind spots and like, there are situations in which, especially I feel like in this community, and, and I'm not trying to point the finger at any particular employer or piece of law or anything like that, but just Nashville in general and maybe the South in general, um, you find yourself in scenarios where people tend to divide themselves or are kept from certain opportunities. And so you might not always be in the most diverse situation. And then I think the onus is on you to go out and find a different point of view, find a different sort of demographic or different type of person than the people that collaborated. If you're in a scenario that's a more, you know, homogenous culture to get to bounce ideas off of or to, to bring into the fold, but at the same time, not making it a scenario where you're putting the labor or the work on that or those individuals. Um, because I think 
we fall into that trap a lot of times where if you're not part of a marginalized community, you want to say, what can I do? How can I do better? And then you've put the, the emotional labor and the burden on whatever that marginalized group is to educate you. When in reality, you should be going forth and enlightening yourself as much as you possibly can and receiving outside feedback well. So I think a lot of it is um, getting feedback from different groups of people, uh, even if they're not people that you work with, um, asking for people out, even if it's just outside of your, your office, like, hey, buddy, like, I'm not, you know, like, obviously don't, you know, don't break any NDAs or whatever <laughs> to do this. But if in your, you're in a scenario where you can give somebody a component out of context um, and say, I'm feeling weird about this, or I don't know how I feel about this, someone's missing, can you put your eyes on it? Even just that is helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also think that it's kind of on us to, um, I, I can't speak for every designer in the world, but I think graphic designers on the whole, we're obviously typically pretty tech savvy or tech comfortable people. And we live a, a large degree of our lives on the internet. So if you're gonna be on the internet consuming articles or videos or content or memes or whatever it might be, if you're gonna be a, you know, an active consumer digitally anyway, um, change your inputs to the channels that are giving a voice to perspectives different than yours. Mm. And, and there's no shame in enjoying something that is like, you know, what you're culturally comfortable with. Nobody's saying you have to turn it to the other channel every 99 out of 100 viewings. But even if just 10 to 15, 20% of the time, you're looking at stuff that's outside of your comfort zone and outside of your bubble and exposing yourself to a point of view that, that isn't, you know, like confirming what you already feel or believe, that's going to be good for you. And that's going to get you to think harder and more thoughtfully and more carefully about the beliefs that you do hold dear and the principles that you do live by. So yeah, I would say like, the number one thing is check your input. And uh, when you're consuming content digitally, like mix it up. Because you, you're the one that's sitting there feeding yourself whatever data you're feeding. So control your own source better and make sure that like you're getting different perspectives than the one you already feel comfortable with. Yeah, to kind of piggyback off that, I think when you're also being in that position where you're giving a critique, if somebody is presenting something to you and you don't recognize in that culture, um, you don't recognize with that demographic, I think it's okay to admit that you do not know that culture or that demographic. Maybe start to learn, okay, listen to what they're saying with their research and then also kind of critique off of just your design fundamentals. Um, you don't have to be a part of 
you don't have to be part of every culture or you don't have to have like a basic understanding of every culture um, to give a critique, um, but really allow that person to kind of explain their process. I've seen it a couple times. Um, in fact, uh, had a story where a designer was kind of explaining their process of a project and um, she was a black female, uh, the uh, person who was giving the critique was a white male. And all he kept on saying was, oh, I just don't get it. I don't get, I don't get your concept. It's not really your place to get it. Yeah. It's at that point, I feel like really judge more on or critique more on your design fundamentals. Yeah, and, and I think your point brings up something interesting that I've kind of, like, stewed on before, but maybe I've never, like, fully realized, which is that we live in such a post-Web 2.0 culture where everything is instantaneous, and especially, I mean, especially post-COVID, like, all of us are holed up in our houses, like, you know getting uber eats and getting annoyed that it's not there in 40 minutes like we are very impatient and and we need a faster internet and quicker download speed and etc cetera, etc cetera. and if it's not right there in front of our face we're annoyed at it and i think that when you get into the habit of living like that as a consumer um and i think graphic designers often do because again we're usually like pretty comfortable with them their inner tubes um I, I think when you get comfortable with that sort of mentality you often forget to uh internalize and process before you react to things and i think that that includes verbal discussions um and so like i, I feel like we have kind of a generation or a generation and a half uh, of folks that they're not comfortable saying like, man, I really need to think that over. Or like, that's, that's interesting. I'll keep that in mind. Rather than like having some like intense opinion at the ready to, to counter, you know, to rebut them with. So yeah, to your point, I think absolutely. Yes. And the one thing that I think we all share the opinion of is, Jennifer Lawrence won the Hunger Games for all of us. So you, you know what's funny? <laughs> I that's one of those movies that every time I tell people I've never seen one of those movies, they always make this particular expression at me, and they're like, "What is wrong with you?" But I've never seen any of the Hunger Games movies. Um, I'm a huge Jennifer Lawrence fan. Um, shout out to my friend Amy; she loves her um and what up amy yes um so we're going to kind of finish this up i want to hear from both of you starting with spencer what's something that you gained from stephanie today i think one of the things that's very important is uh stephanie brought up keeping an open mind and i think that younger generations of, of artists need to be mindful of being multidimensional um, to avoid getting this idea in your head that there's 
there's only one type of art that you're going to do. There's only one type of design, one type of modality, if you will. Um, and I think it's important to be multidimensional. It's a great word to assimilate as many different ideas, as many different schools of thoughts as you can. Because I think that's the direction that we're going. And I think that with the pandemic and the ongoing uh, economic fallout and the social fallout and all the things that are happening, to arm yourself with as many ideas, as much knowledge, as many skills as you can, and be as diversified in your portfolio as you can be. I think that that's, that's the big key right there. Um, and I, I contribute all of that to Stephanie because again, it get back into keeping an open mind and being willing to listen. Well, thank you, Spencer. Steph, you know, go oh, ahead, Bobby. I'm sorry. Um, what is something that you kind of gained from Spencer? Well, so you and I cannot, because I've been actively engaging in this conversation, I haven't like sat down and jotted notes, but I am so impressed with like your ability to, it's like, you are so academically gifted and are able to kind of give a, a big picture perspective on this whole situation and on cultures and on breaking down cultures. And like, especially the first answer that you gave, I was really fascinated with because um, you used a bunch of words that I didn't know. <laughs> that I'm like, oh man, I can't wait to listen to this and look all this stuff up um, because I find it fascinating how you're able to kind of like, because you aren't a designer and you're you're viewing things more through the lens of someone with a, a background in psychology um and just people's interactions in general you just you're able to i, I had a to, to touch on the psychology link i had a therapist once tell me that the fish is the last one to be aware of the water and your distance from the design community and the fact that you're in kind of an outside observer, I think gives you a really astute perspective because, you know, I'm, I'm shouldering the burden of being in the middle of it and being on the front lines of it and mm -hmm. being, you know, stressed out in the day to day. Mm -hmm. And you're able to break it down into some really like specific terms, like, I think you use the word ethnography or something in the beginning and I'm like oh I can't wait to, until Bobby posts this content and I can actually like look some of these things up because I think it's helpful for designers to be able to step outside of themselves and see it as like it isn't just a personal problem <laughs> like there are general trends to human behavior and um, and the other big takeaway is like when you were talking about traditional PR and like, I guess I'm of a generation or maybe just of a, a certain personality type where I forget about the conventional stuff because either it's like always been out of my reach financially or always seem like, like my, I, my personality is like, oh, I don't want to go to a trade show. The people that are going to show up there are going to be old fuddy-duddies or whatever. 
and and that's my own narrow-minded biases and so like I don't know hearing it from somebody who's just kind of an outside observer looking in has been kind of enlightening for me in terms of like what my own personality's limitations are and like oh yeah like that what he's talking about right there is totally me and I've definitely been guilty of that and um I don't know making it kind of like an academic rational thing I I think leads to self-awareness and the more reading that I'm able to do about the sort of behaviors that I might be participating in and not even realize the more self-aware about them I'm going to be which is only going to help me out and in turn you know like help out my work and help out the community as a collective etc so thank you for for kind of like putting it into little academic bites that i can you know do some thinking on uh because it's really hard to see outside of your own like little purview when you're down in it every day that's definitely uh that's definitely a really good point and that's the whole point of what we're doing here with mind plus design is kind of broadening the understanding of not only the design uh, community but ourselves our culture how we evolve um i want to thank both of you guys for joining me with this um we're at the end of our show um i hope everybody gains something from this and uh shares it with uh their friends or colleagues um you know share it with the guy down the street the one that you really think is cute um this is uh (laughs) This is a great month. It's Halloween. Uh, everyone, please Woo! be safe. Spooky season. Spooky season. Please be safe. Um, we're living through a zombie apocalypse already. We don't. It's true. 2020 is the horror film nobody asked for. Nobody. Uh, so please, guys, be safe. I'm going to grab the baby powder and squeeze into my Catwoman suit. I'll see everybody next month. Have a good one. Bye. 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 Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for episode one. We dived a lot into culture and community. And there was a lot that we found the intersectionality amongst. If you really love this episode, please share it with your friends. Share it with your colleagues. Again, share it with that guy down the street. Uh, We will be back next month when we talk about self-care. Have a great day.